Hello, you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. I'm Georgina Durant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners of SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dogs or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining it. In this episode, I have the real pleasure of speaking to Kathy. Kathy is CEO of Autistic Girls Network, a charity supporting and campaigning for autistic girls and their families. She's part of a neurodivergent family and understands the struggle to get accommodations for SEND because in her own words, she's in the thick of it for her own family. Hi, Kathy. Lovely to meet you. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. And thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So Autism in Girls, five finally seems to be a bit of a hot topic. Yes, yes. And I know our listeners of teachers, head teachers, TAs, Senkos are going to be really keen to learn more about supporting autistic girls in their schools and classrooms. I think your Autistic Girls Network is absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. There must be so many families and young people so grateful for everything you're doing. And it's quite a network. I believe you've got over, is it 7,000 members on your Facebook group? We've got 8,500 members in our Facebook group. Yes. Wow. That's a lot of people that you're supporting. It is. It is a lot of people, yes. Could you tell our listeners what the Autistic Girls Network is then, in case they haven't heard about it yet? Yes, sure. So um, Autistic Girls Network has been around for about three, three to four years now. I can't even remember. Um, it wasn't founded by me. It right. was founded by another lady called Mandy um, who had multiple autistic children, yep. but her it took a lot longer for her daughter to receive an autism diagnosis than for her sons. Um, and this is very, very common. Mm-hmm. Um Research shows, on average, um, an autism diagnosis is about three years later for girls oh than for boys. And obviously, when when you're a child, three years makes an awful lot of difference. Absolutely. Um, not to mention that it takes such a long time to get a diagnosis at the moment mm. anyway, especially after COVID. Um, there are some areas in England where it's taking four years to get an autism diagnosis. And that's, you know, that's for everybody. So on average, girls are going to be longer than that. Um, So I took it over um, about two years ago now. Okay. um, And really wanted to turn it into a registered charity, which I'm very pleased to say happened uh, last month. Brilliant. So that was great. Uh, That's been a month in the the waiting for the Charities Commission. Um, And what we hope to do is of course, spread awareness and understanding about um, autism in girls. And perhaps I will expand on that in a little bit in a minute to yeah. say that it's not just girls that we're talking about here. Okay. Um, but also to um, campaign for an earlier diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so that means talking to health professionals as well and local authorities, um, which we are starting to do. Um, also to to really make a difference um, in the mental health side of things. Yes. Uh, because unfortunately, um, I would say a majority of the families in our Facebook group uh, do have dealings with, with CAMS uh, yeah. because their children do have mental health issues. Um, and 
not all, of course, but many of these mental health issues are caused by a late diagnosis yeah. and by schools not understanding um, their need, their autistic needs, okay. basically. Um, the other thing that we'd really like to do is to start face-to-face groups for girls because Brilliant. what we've found and what I have found personally as well with my own daughter, um, who is autistic, um, is that finding your tribe and really getting to know other autistic teens and peers um, really makes a difference because you realize you know all that time you've been thinking that you're weird Mm -hmm. and that there's nobody else like you and that you don't fit in and suddenly you realize that there are in fact lots and lots of other people like you and that really makes a difference Um, and so that's you know that's the message that we'd like to spread be aware that other people experience the world differently to you yes oh that's lovely absolutely brilliant so these face-to-face sessions then what's your hope are you going to have them sort of across the country different sort of hubs yeah I mean eventually obviously you know we can't we can't run before we can walk and at the moment we don't have any funding so it's not happening at the moment Um, but what we'd like to do is to start them in areas where there isn't already a good group we're certainly not going to go in and compete where there's already a good group that would that would be silly Um, but yes we'd like to start them in areas where we know that there are a lot of um, autistic girls uh, which which is just about everywhere really Um, and we'd like to start them and they would be run on a kind of a reverse franchise basis, if you like. So obviously we can't personally staff them all, no. um, but we would be looking for for volunteers um, who could be DBS checked, et cetera, and who would follow um, a format that we come up with and we fund it um so that you know it can it can reach girls that otherwise really aren't being supported very well yeah that's wonderful I hope it I hope it goes well so your background then why are you so passionate you touched on that your daughter's autistic is that what led you into this Yes, I'm both. Both my children are autistic. I've got a boy and a girl, uh, and both of them weren't diagnosed until they were in their teens. Right. Um, so for my daughter, I'm not going to go into her story because that's her story, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, mental health definitely played a part. Yeah. Um, in in the kind of a you know, she was diagnosed in crisis basically, right. and this this follows a pattern that we see over and over again in the Facebook group, yeah. where you know, even if um flags have been raised and that perhaps they are on the waiting list they aren't getting the support that they should be getting in school okay. the schools aren't really putting in any any meaningful um reasonable adjustments for them until they get diagnosis which actually isn't what's supposed to happen um but you know it and it's causing mental health issues Absolutely. and you know a lot of it is to do with sensory stuff but mm-hmm. but not always because you know really good assessment is needed to find out you know for example do they have poor working memory you know is are things like interoception which is how you um how you feel things in your body yes is there an interoception issue do they have alexithymia which is being able to um identify and express your emotions what we have found is that those three things are the biggest issues and Mm -hmm. once you get some knowledge and understanding around those three things you can start to make a difference absolutely so your hopes for schools then would be that there'd be more training presumably more understanding of autism in girls so that 
children can be identified sooner rather than waiting until they're in their teens. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is already good training available. Um, Training is available from the Autism Education Trust. Mm -hmm. So it's not like anybody has to invent the wheel now. You know, that has been around for quite a few years. It has autistic involvement, actually autistic involvement. Um, And it is partially funded by the DOV, as far as I know. Um, Now, it's not completely free, um, but I think most LAs do offer at least the first level of, mm-hmm. of AET training to schools, but a lot of schools don't take it up. So right. I would say that, they, you know, there needs to be a willingness to learn yeah. and it needs, to, it also needs to be a whole school, yes. um, whole school awareness. It's, 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 it's not going to happen properly if it's only cascading down from one person. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so Autistic Girls Network used to be called FIGS UK, is that right? Fighting yes. Inequality for Girls on the Spectrum. So yes. why why did the name change? Is there a reason behind um, that? I mean, partly it was pragmatic reasons. Um, you know, I'm in marketing. I run a digital marketing agency, yeah. totally, totally separate from Autistic Girls Network. It's what pays my bills at the moment. <laughs> Um, and you know, in in terms of attracting people who are just looking on the internet or just searching Facebook, it makes much more sense to have have the word autistic in have there. Have the word autistic and girls in yeah. the title. And perhaps now is a good time to say that it's not only girls that we yeah. that we want to help. Um, there is no female type of autism that yeah. doesn't exist. Um, some girls present classically you might say although I don't really like that term either um some some girls present in a more external way which tends Mm -hmm. to get recognized but the majority of girls and some boys and some non-binary children um have an internal presentation and that's what is happening here in most of these cases um the the presentation of autism is very very internalized so you're not really seeing the kind of behaviors which make it obvious that the child is autistic and that's why they weren't diagnosed when they were three or five or whatever um but it is possible to spot or to to start having thoughts about whether they do have an internalised presentation of autism and things like situational mutism where they are unable to to speak uh, if they don't feel that they're in a safe environment, Mm -hmm. Um, things like extended absence from school, things like, you know, never putting their hand up in class or being very um, reluctant to be called upon in class, all of those things by themselves, of course, are not autistic traits but when yeah. you add them all together it is time to start wondering whether that girl is autistic okay brilliant that's, that sort of leads on to my question because I was going to ask for our listeners because there'll be senkos there'll be teachers listening who are thinking how am I going if it's internalized how will I know if there's a child in my class who could be autistic so you would say looking for those things looking for a, a collection of these things and not putting their hand yeah, up yeah I mean often. going to be things like you know, as soon as there are mental health issues, yeah. that is, you know, you need to be thinking about whether there is um, autism or perhaps ADHD behind it. Yeah. Um, as I said, situational muti- mutism is a big flag. Yes. And I don't, I deliberately don't use the term selective mutism because it's not a choice. No. Um, it's, it's that that child is feeling very, very unsafe and that is why they won't speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually 
they will once they feel safe they will start to speak again um but it's definitely you know i couldn't i couldn't say if a child is situationally mute they must be autistic of course no. um but it's definitely something that raises flags for me yeah um and there will be other things you know things like friendships girls do tend to have friends and just mm-hmm. just like autistic boys can have friends of course they can um but they tend it tends to be uh, more kind of on the edges of a friendship group not taking leadership yeah. of of a friendship role um and as they get older friendships do become more difficult yeah. um i guess because you know social roles of girls particularly become yeah. more difficult as well as they get older Absolutely. puberty gets in the way you know you start they start thinking about boys etc and a lot of autistic girls wouldn't necessarily be thinking about those things yet so yeah. when when all of that starts to change and the the kind of the tone of their friendship group starts to change that causes anxiety for autistic yeah. girls because they don't really know what's going on and why their friends are changing yeah no that makes sense because i think teenage in particular girls sort of friendships do become quite complex don't they there's there's like nuances that you don't understand perhaps if you're autistic and yeah it can become difficult that does make sense um there's lots of incorrect stereotypes of autism for boys and girls are there any in particular for for girls that you would like to flag up that aren't true for example lack of empathy I think that's one that is a lack of empathy is a huge (laughs) one yeah I mean autistic people generally can you know there's a wide variety just as there are we're all human aren't we we're all different we all have different levels of empathy different levels of understanding of other people you know all of us no matter what our neurotype um but you know if i had to generalize i would say that autistic girls are more empathetic Mm -hmm. than than their neurotypical peers um it just that it may express itself in a different way and you know it's back to remembering that other people experience the world in a different way to you so you know for for an autistic girl um the feelings of an animal or i don't know a soft toy a cuddly toy Mm -hmm. may be just as important as the feelings of one of their friends or one of their classmates um and you know, when you open your mind to the idea of people yeah. feeling different ways, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. You know, so it, it, they can be very, very intensely empathetic to the point where it's actually painful and it, oh, it can actually be, it can actually, they, they feel emotions in a big way, shall we yeah. say. Oh, yeah. Um, another one I was going to ask was about special interests because autism in boys is um, often, I know, again, stereotypically, there's, they can have special interests. Is that, do we see that as much with girls? I mean, for girls, they tend, what they tend to, to ha- what, sorry, what tends to happen, um, and perhaps this is a reflection of, of the way society brings girls up, mm. Is that they tend to have special interests that are more in line with their peers. Yeah. So, for example, might be I don't know K-pop or something. Yeah. You know, Korean pop um, might be animals, might mm-hmm. be Harry Potter, but they will feel those interests very intensely. Yeah. So, for example, at the time, you know, my daughter was diagnosed when she was thirteen. Up to that point, we didn't really know. Nobody had ever flagged that she was autistic she's actually autistic and adhd and dyspraxic and dyslexic uh none of those were ever flagged Gosh. by any professional 
Uh, even after she had her autism diagnosis, the other three were not flagged by any professional. So, you know, it, there are, the, mm-hmm. these girls are going invisible yeah let down in, completely. in our schools um and you know she wasn't diagnosed as dyslexic until this year she's 16 now she wasn't oh, diagnosed yeah. as dyslexic until this year um so you know and this in the last week because she's but she's already been on holiday for a week in the last week she has read a book that was in a dyslexia font mm-hmm. um and that's the first book that she's ever actually lay on the sofa and read from wow. cover to cover she didn't oh. actually enjoy it <laughs> which is a shame um but still she read yes. it she read it oh how um, disappointing that she could have had if if it was flagged up sooner she could have had access to texts that were dyslexia friendly earlier yes. on and may have developed a love of reading she may she may have done she well she certainly may have had an awful lot less uh issues at school yeah shall we say um, sorry, I've now forgot. I've now forgotten what you actually asked me. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> um, her special interest. I think you were going to give an example. Yes, perhaps, I mean, of her I, special I interest. couldn't really yeah. tell you what her special interests were. Right. Um, you know, you know, and all the all the stereotypes of like lining up toys and things, lining up cars and trains mm-hmm. and things. When I think back, she used to line up Monster High dolls, but at the time. Uh never occurred to me that that was anything no. you know different um to to her peers because of course yeah. you don't go and see her their fr- friends playing in their no. houses anyway do you so you know your normal is your normal no. so um yeah you know not that there was en- not that there's anything wrong with lining up monster high dolls anyway or trains or cars no. um now now i'm very aware of of her special interest and it's actually um highly a highly autistic special interest because she is passionate about um i suppose minority groups and social justice brilliant and that's a that's a very very common autistic people generally like to stick up for the 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 downtrodden shall we say Um, and have a have a really really strong sense of social justice I personally think that ought to be a diagnostic trait of of autism um and you know it's it's something that we should celebrate it's a fantastic thing we need people Um, like that don't we more people like that exactly (laughs) well I mean yeah don't get me started I I think (laughs) I think many of you know many of the um really important things that have happened to the human race were probably due due to neurodivergent people I think Mm. but of course I can't prove any of that (laughs) (laughs) perhaps a little bit too deep to go into now as well (laughs) (laughs) what about um sensory differences with girls as well is that I know we've spoken about interoception sort of internal ones but in terms of like external in terms of sensory um differences can they be oversensitive or undersensitive to sensory stimuli I don't think that this is this is something that can be generalized by gender I think there's probably just as many boys who might have strong sensory issues and I think it's very much an individual thing certainly for my daughter um sensory stuff and my husband um who's also autistic Mm -hmm. um and to a lesser extent me um sensory is really really important and probably at times among the most disabling things for her so um very very sensitive to noise um probably i mean it's not diagnosed but probably has misophonia which is like 
um, very strong sensitivity, even painfulness um, at everyday noises. So it's not like really loud, like a car alarm or something, although that would be painful. Yeah. Um, But, you know, even things like other people chewing, um, we can't, we can't, we don't sit at the dinner table in our house um, because it's painful for her. Gosh. Um, And she wears, um, she wears headphones a lot, noise cancelling headphones a lot. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, you know, that's one of the things that definitely would be a reasonable adjustment for many autistic children yeah. in schools. I imagine the dinner hall would be an absolute nightmare for some children. She, yeah, for, I mean, she's not at mainstream school anymore. No. Um, but when she was, she, for at least a year before she stopped going to school, she couldn't go in the dining hall. Yeah. Uh, in fact, for the last six months, she didn't eat at school at all. Oh, but that was incredibly worrying. And that's, well. you know, that if that starts happening, that's also another flag yeah for autism as is any kind of eating disorder yes absolutely now I was reading on your blog on your website there was a specific blog I read um yesterday written by Emily who's autistic and she's one of your trustees I believe yeah and I'll freely admit I was in tears reading it um it absolutely broke my heart I don't know if it's because I've got a daughter myself or if it I just just reading what she had written I just found really, really upsetting and how that she'd been failed by school. Uh, I don't think there's any other way of putting it, to be honest. Um, and just the way that she felt about herself. And she, I'll read out one little bit for our listeners. She so said, I grew up believing that there was something fundamentally wrong about me. I knew I didn't seem to fit into the world. And because I couldn't pinpoint why, I believed it was me. I came to the conclusion that leaving this world was the best option. Now, that's it's horrifying, isn't it? Um, it's, it's something it is you hear a lot of. It's yes, we hear a lot of that. We hear it a lot. Yeah, I, you know, I have the probably a week doesn't go by that I don't have a parent mm-hmm. um, messaging me about something like that. Gosh, um, yeah. so is this? Do you think this is down to later diagnosis or not? Yes, being I mean, you know, at all? My, my daughter thought that she was going mad. She because oh. she knew that there was something different about yeah. her but she didn't know what and nobody had ever flagged autism. So it wouldn't have occurred to her that that's what it was. Um, But of course she hid it from us for a long time. Mm. We thought that she had OCD, well, she does have OCD as well, but um, OCD is another thing that can be very internalized. um, And it's also something that happens a lot when autism is not recognized. Yeah. Um, So that kind of internal voice Mm -hmm. um, is, it gets dangerous. Yeah, it really does. And of course, um, you know, CAMS has its own problems and its own um, funding issues, etc. And the the um, the level of support that you can get when you have only and that's on a podcast in inverted commas (laughs) only um, only um, suicidal ideation rather than actually attempting it. Unfortunately, you, you don't. You don't get any support. That's terrifying. Um, so, you know, it is it is terrifying and it kind of it's difficult because it's putting it all back onto the schools really. Mm. I know yeah. I know many schools are desperate to get Absolutely. support from CAMS and don't get it. Um and it's, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So what undoubtedly, what, but you know, the biggest thing well the biggest thing that can help is is really understanding autism and the 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 internal presentation of autism. Um, And there is a pilot project uh, funded by NHS England, um, which I'm involved with, with my other hat on as my local parent care forum. 
called the Autism in Schools Project. Mm -hmm. And the reason that is funded by NHS England is because of the high level of referral for tier four CAMs, which is inpatient CAMs. Um, And they recognise that, you know, this is obviously causing a huge, you know, inroad into their budget. You know, it's all all about the money, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, And they recognise that, it actually would be cheaper to fund the autism in schools project than it would to be fund to fund all of these young people going into tier four cams units of which there are not enough anyway um and it's it's really looking at um educating school staff on on autism and how it can present Mm -hmm. um in a way that perhaps they weren't aware of before, in a, you know, in a less traditional classic way than they were aware of before, but also um, working with parents mm-hmm. um, and working with the, the local parent care forums to set up many parent care forums in the schools, so which will hopefully foster a better relationship between parents and schools. Um, and also, depending on the project, because each local area will be doing theirs differently, um, but we're actually working on identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so identity for the autistic young person and how they can um, recognise their identity and find their tribe yes. and be more happy with themselves, basically, and be there, be able to be their autistic self rather than mask their autism. We haven't actually really talked about autistic masking. No, that's one of my next questions, actually, Kathy. (laughs) Yeah, so autistic girls are often said to be very good at masking. Can you explain to someone who might not know what masking actually is, um, what it is and why it's so draining? Because it can be incredibly draining for autistic girls or uh, autistic people in general. So so autistic masking is, is... Consciously or unconsciously, the autistic young person has realised that they need to camouflage some of their autistic traits. Um, And often this is completely unconscious. Certainly my my daughter was an expert masker, Mm -hmm. but she never would have been able to say that she was doing it at the time. Um, And it's, it's really, it's trying to fit in because of the stigma of, of being autistic basically which which very much exists it's it's trying to fit yourself in with your peers so that you don't stand out and you don't get bullied and you don't get teased um and it's it's hiding your authentic self and it's a 24 7 um effort for some autistic people well I guess they're not doing it while they're sleeping but you know what I mean um it's a you know it's it's a huge effort and not only is it completely exhausting but it's also really really bad for your mental health because you are you are not you are you're hiding your identity you're hiding your autistic self Mm -hmm. and you know, that's not going to be good for anyone's mental health, is it? No, absolutely not. And do you think that's one of the reasons then, presumably, that girls and boys who are autistic, if they're masking, they're not getting diagnosed as easily because it's not as apparent? Yeah, I mean, they're they're trying super, super hard to fit in. Yeah. And so, you know, it is going to be hard to spot them. Yeah. and Um, because, Because for them, they feel like their life depends on it. Gosh. And then, you know, it's very hard to drop the mask after mm-hmm. that. So I would say it took my daughter probably a good year to drop the mask, even properly at home. Yes. Um, and now at home, she is completely different to how she was, you know, pre-13. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess she would be anyway because she's obviously three years older. But, <laughs> you know, even so, you know, she, she is completely different. And, you know, it's when you're masking, you can't learn any of the things that you would otherwise have learned to do, such as self-regulate mm -hmm. your emotions. So if you don't know that you have a big sensory issue and you don't realise that everyone else is not in pain from hearing people chewing, for example, yeah. because it is actual physical pain, yeah. um, you know, as, as, I just, as I said before, you know, your normal is your normal. Absolutely. So you're not going to realise that somebody else doesn't no. feel that way as well. Um, and so, of course, you're thinking, why doesn't that, why, you know, why isn't everyone else having a problem with this? It's just me. Yeah. You know, there's something wrong with me. I'm yeah. faulty. How are they managing um, to sit there and listen to this sound that's yeah, causing them exactly. pain and not be acting the same way I feel? Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it's not surprising really that she thought she was going a bit mad. Yeah. They, that's interesting what you said about masking at home as well. I think a lot of people presume that they've heard like the Coke bottle scenario, the idea that at school you might mask, but then when you get home from school and you feel more comfortable, then that's when the, especially with younger children, that's when the emotions come out and the mask might, you know, they might not be masking as much. Is that also something that can happen? Yeah. Oh, well, that's definitely something that can happen, but you know, it can, it can also be become even more internalized. Yeah. And that's where like, that's where the serious mental health issues start yeah. coming because you're, you're even internalizing the trauma of of the coke bottle effect yes um and so that's when you know you start hearing voices etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it is it is really really important that these girls are recognized Absolutely. as autistic much earlier um because you know if you know now knowing what we know now and understanding things like interoception and alexithymia you know it it allows you to not only upskill and educate everyone around your child, but to let your child be able to understand those things so that they can self-regulate themselves. So now, you know, my daughter, for example, has kind of an internal checklist of things that she can do mm -hmm. if she starts to feel really stressed and anxious. And I can still, you know, it's still pretty obvious that yeah. she's really stressed and anxious. You know, for, for example, you know, she's just had her booster mm -hmm. jab um and that that makes her very stressed and anxious yeah. and it's it's pretty obvious to me when she's in that state um but there are things that she can do so she she definitely needs vestibular movement so she goes and paces up and down the garden and that really helps her but you know imagine all those years of of being at school and having to keep still mm. um in class and things like that when actually she should have been up and walking moving. you know yeah and moving about so um, and there's you know that's who knows what the actual um prevalence of autism or neurodivergency in general is it's certainly not the one in a hundred that the national autistic society says yeah i was so, going to build on that because yeah. i think you've mentioned haven't you yeah that um they're saying it's one in 100 but you re you think it's probably more like what do you, yeah, what did you? Well, there, I mean, there are numerous studies mm -hmm. um, in the US. We don't, we don't really seem to do that kind of study here, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but the latest study in the US is one in forty-four, yeah. and that's that's by the CDC, so that's an official yeah. figure. Uh, but they were only counting eight-year-olds. 
Right. So there are a huge number of people, especially girls, who are not diagnosed until after they are eight. So it's yes. not including any of those people. Yeah. So one in 44 is definitely wrong. It's mm-hmm. definitely more than that. Um, there has been a study in um, Northern Ireland, I think, which found something like one in 22. Wow. So, you know, it, it's definitely much more common than we think yeah. it is. And this matters because of funding, doesn't it? This is important for funding. It matters hugely. Um, you know, National National Autistic Society statistics are what is used to inform government policy mm-hmm. and, and therefore funding. Yeah. So, you know, not having the right figures really makes a big difference. I mean, the other issue is that um, there have been studies which show up to 70% of autistic people also have ADHD. Yeah. So, you know, there's all there's also all of that. Yeah. And the presentation of autism plus ADHD is a, is slightly different again. Right. So, you know, you've got all of those little intersectionalities and you you've also got things like um people of color not being recognized as being neurodivergent as well. Right. Um and so you've got all of those those little inequalities I guess not being addressed and people's needs not being met yeah absolutely so so, when parents find you is are they at this crisis point when they find you on when they find the autistic girls network or is it they often are yeah Yeah. sadly because it must be difficult for parents to be able to be I think it's almost like we need more awareness in general in the whole of society about autism so that people are more aware if their child is autistic and then are able to yeah them. I mean I would say probably well, I'm, I'm just guessing here but I would say probably like 70% of people that come to our group their child is already um having persistent absence from school yeah. um you know related to to anxiety about school um and so, you know, these parents are often being threatened with fines, mm-hmm. um, etc., or having visits from the LA or, you know, all of those things which really add stress to absolutely. an already incredibly stressful situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in terms of wait, how long they're waiting for the diagnosis, once, once the parents are thinking, OK, I think my child might be autistic, or once the school is thinking perhaps they're autistic, how long did you say they're waiting for an autistic diagnosis? Up to four years. Up to four years. And the dangers of that wait is is mental health issues as well as not understanding themselves and not having the accommodations put in place. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is that everyone is an individual. Every autistic person is an individual. Every neurotypical person is an individual, of course. Um, and so really, until they are properly assessed, and I don't just mean an autism assessment, Yeah. I also mean you know, an OT assessment, a yes. sensory o- OT assessment, a speech and language assessment, mm-hmm. an educational psychologist assessment, until they are properly assessed, you don't really know what somebody's needs are. So no. you can't meet them. No. You know, it's really you're you're just skimming the surface yeah. if you if you haven't actually found out what their strengths and their challenges are. Yeah. Um, you know, until she had her sensory OT assessment, we really didn't understand just how important sensory was to my daughter, for example. Yeah. And not just bad things, not just finding things difficult, but also things which really helped. So, yes. for example, a sense of, she's got a really strong sense of smell and um, think the smell of, ironically, clean washing. <laughs> 
um, which you can actually get from a Yankee candle. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> um, luckily, there's not much clean washing in my house, obviously. I was going to say, with lots of teenagers, <laughs> it might be a tricky one. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, those s- smells can also be used for emotional regulation. You know, they really help. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not just finding things that are difficult. It's yeah. finding things which help too. Yeah, oh, that's lovely. But unfortunately, in a school setting especially a secondary school especially a really big Mm. mainstream secondary school they can be a toxic place for autistic people there's no two ways about it you know in a in a school with so many people in it I I venture to say it would have been impossible for my daughter to be there yeah any longer is there anything so if, if schools are listening now is there anything they can do Knowing that there will be undiagnosed autistic children in their school, is there anything, any accommodations they can put in place to make the school sort of better in general? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, what absolutely. What could they be doing? Are. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for example, you know, for a start, just just understanding and awareness would yes. really help. Um, but there's things like fluorescent light bulbs. Yeah. They are awful. They are a sensory nightmare. They are noisy. They flicker. Mm-hmm. Um, for for a person with sensory issues, they are awful. But actually, they're not good for any of us. No. So getting rid of them in, in general would be good for all pupils, not just autistic pupils. Um, things like the school bell. The school yeah. bell is the school bell is very can be very traumatic for autistic people. So finding an alternative to that mm-hmm. would be good. Um, Things like not having really over busy, chaotic corridors and, and classroom walls would help. Yes, definitely. Just make it a calmer place, a calmer sensory place. Um, if if people don't know already, there is um, a company called Studio 3, which does really good what's called low arousal mm-hmm. training for for um, schools. And it's it's basically it's making a very kind of low arousal sensory environment yeah um and you can't you can't do that through the whole school but no. you certainly can have an area that has a low arousal sensory environment and you can certainly make the whole school a less chaotic busy place yeah. so you know all of those the, the the trigger points are going to be things like what i call the corridors of hell yeah um so every hour when you know, when you have to move lessons and you're suddenly thrown into a crowded corridor, a narrow corridor with hundreds of other pupils. Yeah. That is an absolute nightmare for autistic people. Um, so there's not really much that you can do about that for an undiagnosed person, but there certainly yes. is for a diagnosed yeah. or not, not necessarily diagnosed, but somebody that you recognize yes. has special educational needs. Um, but there's lots of other things too. And, you know, I did, I'm doing a master's at the moment in autism and I did um, a special project over the summer on transition mm-hmm. um, to secondary school. And there was some interest, there was some interesting stuff that came up from that. And it's, it became obvious um, that it wasn't necessarily having a diagnosis that made a difference in transition, but it was, having a really individualized plan. Yeah. So obviously they did have to know that the child had, you know, was on the SEND register maybe yes. or something. So they did have to know that the child had needs. Mm-hmm. They had to know what those needs were, but they didn't necessarily need a diagnosis. No. So out of 17 uh, young people that took part in this, in the survey, 
um, only three of them had a good transition to secondary wow. school. And those three were the schools that, that had very, very good individualised transition plans for yeah. those children. But one of them was not diagnosed. So it wasn't to do with being no. diagnosed or not at primary school. It was to do with recognising and being aware of the need and making accommodation for that. Yeah, and having those but meetings the, between the primary school and the secondary yeah, school. Yeah, and transition is a long, it should be a long process as well. Yeah. For an autistic person, it could well last for two years, that transition, a wow. year before and two years after. So you certainly, for an autistic student or for somebody that you suspect, um, is neurodivergent somehow, that transition should still be happening, you know, right up until the year of end of year seven, at least, yeah. you should still be putting special things into place for that pupil. So teachers listening in primary schools at the moment, then they should be thinking if they've got somebody in mind, they need to be thinking in year five, really, how yeah. they're going to start that transition to the next school. I know, I know there are transition activities that do start in year five, but even more so for that child. Yes, yes. And that child, that what's really important as well is um, a person who really understands. Yes. Might, I mean, it'd be better if it was more than one person, but mm -hmm. at least one person who really understands and who, that, who can kind of mentor that child and who that child can go to yeah. if they have a problem. That was really, really, that came up as really, really important as well. And friends, friends were yes. important. And I wonder whether... Um, this was why my daughter didn't break down until year eight mm -hmm. is because she moved up with 17 people from her. her she, it was a feeder school, her yeah. primary school. There were 17 of them that went to her school yeah. and uh, two of her really good friends were in her class. Yeah. And I, we think, you know, I've asked her about this since and we think that that insulated her yeah. from the otherwise you know, perhaps really disabling effects of transition yeah, absolutely. on secondary school. And what, what strikes me as well is when you're talking about, you know, simple things that school could be doing is it's not just beneficial to autistic children, it's beneficial to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. Not, you know, they're not extra. It's a bit like when you talk about making a school more dyslexia friendly, the benefits come for everybody. It's useful. There's no reason why you shouldn't be doing them. Like, And simple things that don't cost very much, like like you say about displays, not having really chaotic displays. I think I've probably been guilty when, when I was a teacher sometimes as well as trying to make the the walls look fun and exciting but it can sometimes be really not beneficial to learning oh, it I mean I think I think we're all I think we're all guilty of that aren't we we mm. want to make it look pretty yes <laughs> but you know it's it's we come back to the same thing every time is we have to open our mind yeah that other people experience things different ways and the way that we think isn't necessarily the right way yes. you know there isn't a right and wrong way there are just lots of different right ways absolutely I think that's really important um I wanted to touch on so Melanie Sykes in the Guardian in November she wrote that she said that the education system should be torn down and rebuilt and I wondered what your opinion on that was if you if you're quite as yeah, extreme I, as her I agree no I absolutely agree with her yeah what would you I if you tore it down her. then and rebuilt it how would you rebuild it differently I wouldn't have you know these huge schools I mean it's all very easy for me to say isn't it because obviously I'm not in charge of the funding no but uh, and in an ideal I think world most, I think most of the issues that schools and CAMs have are, are down to funding and probably yeah. a lot of teachers would agree with yeah, that yeah. I should think um but you know what I what I really would like to change is the behaviorist thinking and the behaviorist attitude mm -hmm. um that 
you know things must be punished and you must you must behave a certain way and if you don't you're you're being naughty or things like that yeah so I remember few years ago before she was diagnosed autistic my my daughter came home and she was really cross and of course now I realize oh strong sense of social justice um, but she was really she was really cross because um she had been they'd been doing a science experiment at school and it was to do with sound um and it was they were producing a sound that humans weren't supposed to be able to hear mm-hmm. and she said that she could hear it wow. and the teacher didn't believe her but she very unusually for her she pushed back and said no yes she she could hear it because she could yeah she wasn't she wasn't lying (laughs) um and the teacher thought that she was lying and being cheeky I don't know and she got a detention for it oh my goodness and she was absolutely outraged at this and so am I when I think back on it I'm really outraged and you know the reason that happened was because that teacher couldn't understand that somebody experienced the world in a different way to them and because they couldn't hear the sound and because they'd been told that humans can't hear this sound because you know everything is based on on neurotypical society um they thought that she was lying and that she was being rude and cheeky oh my goodness um but so how invalidating must it be for a teacher to tell you that you can't hear a sound when that you, you know <laughs> you know damn well you can hear this you just heard it absolutely yeah no I can completely see that so in terms oh in terms of what you're doing I be- are you currently writing a book have I have I researched yes. it correctly I believe you're writing for the yes. same publishers as me so Jessica Kingsley Publishers is that correct yes that's right that's can you right. tell us more about your book how how much you're yeah, my, to tell us? I have the first draft is with my editor very good <laughs> Yes, it's a book for um, parents of late diagnosed children, so tweens and teens, yeah. basically, um, because the they well, they're, I was going to say the pathway is different for if your child is diagnosed earlier, but actually the pathway is non-existent. Yeah, if if your child is diagnosed, you know, past about ten, really, there's there's no automatic support that comes into place that otherwise might have happened if your child was diagnosed as let's say three i'm not saying that the support that you get when your child is diagnosed at three is great either yeah um but it is better than when your child is diagnosed later and of course if your child is diagnosed later then often things have got much more complicated because all of the issues that we've talked about have come into play Absolutely. So who is your book for parents then? Or for, it's yeah, for parents, parents, yeah. Brilliant. But obviously yeah. it'd be a useful one for teachers as well to check Oh out. yeah, there'll be plenty in there for teachers too. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who want to know more about Autistic Girls Network and autism in girls in general, can you give us some links? Where do they need to go? Yes. So you are, um, our website, our website is um, autisticgirlsnetwork.org and our Facebook page is called Autistic Girls Network. So if you just search that, you'll be able to find it. Um, on Twitter, it's slightly more complicated because the name was too long <laughs> um, and Autistic Girls is already gone. Uh, so it's Autistic Girls underscore yeah. on Twitter um, and on Instagram, it's Autistic Girls Network. Fantastic. And if they wanted to, because you're a charity, so people may want to help support you, hopefully, from listening to this. Um, if they wanted to support you, what is, how can they do that? It, it- yeah, we do have a GoFundMe page, which is uh, pinned to the top of our Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, we are always looking for volunteers. Um, you know, we would love people to come forward to say that they need a group in their area. Yeah. 
um, and possibly volunteer to lead yes. it. Um, it would always they would always be at least two leaders, so they wouldn't be stuck on their own. Brilliant. Um, you know, and we we are bas- we are just basically um, waiting to get funding for those, and then they will be off the ground. So. Yeah. If there's um, a Senko or perhaps who's listening to this and thinking they want their school to know more about autism in girls do you offer training to them could they get in contact with you yeah, as well we can offer training and actually one of our trustees is an ex-head oh, wow. um and she's autistic herself um and yeah we are we are currently uh, thinking about the training that we can offer Fantastic. um so yes there will be training coming up in 2021 2022 oh <laughs> <laughs> yes don't worry 2022 i'm a, I'm a year behind already <laughs> I was trying to work that out then with the podcast timing of when it comes out. It's like 2021. Yeah, 2022. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, so thank you ever so much for joining us. Is there any sort of ending remarks, anything that you want people to take away as a takeaway message about autism in girls in general? Yes, I would, uh, you know, I would just, I know I've gone no, on no. about it, but I was, I would just like to say, really open your mind and, you know, just... There are some good videos and we have a resources page on our website and we link to some of these videos. There are some good videos that give you more of an understanding of how an autistic person might feel in a very disruptive sensory environment. And I would say, have a look at those and just try to open your mind and just have a look around. Do an do a walk around your school and do a kind of a sensory audit. I know it's hard when when you don't necessarily understand yourself. And this is part of what we'll be offering in the Autism in Schools project is a sensory Brilliant. audit. But just, just kind of walk around your school and see if you can find where the trigger points mm. might be for somebody that's very, very sensitive to touch or noise or smell. Um, and just try and see if there's anything that you could do to alleviate that a yeah. bit. And, it, you know, all of these things will, will start to make a difference. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. Really good advice. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Cathy. You're very welcome. What an interesting guest and such an important topic. I don't know if you could hear it in my voice, but when I was reading out that extract from the blog post by Emily, one of their trustees, I found hearing her experience or reading her experience really, really upsetting. And it's made me think that we need to do a lot more, perhaps as a society. Um, I think Cathy has given some really tangible, useful advice that schools can implement to help make a real difference to autistic children in their setting. So please do go and check out their website and the wonderful things they're doing. Once again, thank you for listening to Send in the Experts with me, Georgina Durrant. Please subscribe to our podcast if you're not doing so already and help us spread the word about this podcast. See you next time.